1: Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. As the calendar turns to June, there are only two Florida teams still competing. And while there were doubts throughout the spring that neither would have made it to this point, baseball and softball have proven that success in their marathon sports isn't about how you start, but the way you finish. On today's show, we'll welcome FloridaGators.com senior writers Chris Harry and Scott Carter to discuss softball's return to Oklahoma City, baseball's unlikely path to hosting a regional, Ben Shelton's championship run in the men's tennis singles competition, revelations from the SEC meetings in Destin, and our favorite action movies in the PAT. Then, new soccer coach Samantha Bohan shares her coaching philosophy, her path to leading the Gators, and why it's the only job that could have lured her away from her longtime post at Embry-Riddle. But first, it's time for the Gator Roundtable presented by Pet Paradise. Are you the kind of fan who loves your team as much as your pet? Bring your pets to play where animal lovers and sports fans collide. Pet Paradise, the official pet care provider of the Florida Gators. It is once again time to convene the roundtable. One of our final roundtables of the year as the athletic calendar is winding down, uh, but there are still very important things happening, which is why we have Gators Scott and Gators Chris here to talk about it. Uh, And let's start where Chris is right now, which is Oklahoma City. Uh, Chris, I don't know that after game one of the Super Regional, if it seemed probable that you would be sitting where you are now, um, but Florida overcame the odds. They rallied and they have returned to Oklahoma City in maybe the most unlikely fashion they've been there in recent memory.
0: Uh, Well, they've never been here uh, by winning a Super Regional on the road. So um, that's a that's a first for Tim Walton. And it had to be satisfying to your point. Things have kind of changed for them a little bit, I'd say, the last, the last month or so. Uh, I think we talked about last week, at one point in the season, they were, uh, they were 11-11 in SEC play. Um, and that's the day that, that uh, Cheyenne Lindsay delivered that uh, ninth-inning home run at LSU. And Tim Walton, you mentioned it again during their uh, arrival press conference here in, in Oklahoma City, his biggest hit of the season. Because he thinks it just kind of gave the Gators something that maybe they've been missing. Uh, to that point. Um, you know they won 12 of the last 16 games, but more importantly, it's how they've won. They're, they're, they're hitting and scoring runs. Uh, how about 62 hits? and uh, I believe it's 48 runs in the NSA tournament. That's the most of any team in the NSA tournament. And of course, this is a tournament that still includes the Oklahoma Sooners. Mm-hmm. Um, but to to get here and to to again, let's go back to that Friday game, lose six, nothing. Uh, Must-win situation. Double you know two back-to-back elimination games. Won the first one 7-3, and then uh, really uh, never even never even let uh, Virginia Tech like breathe in the uh, in the decisive game three four nothing lead out of the box. Ended up winning twelve nothing. Mercy ruled. Um, I talked to Amanda Lorenz uh, Wednesday during at the at the College World Series stadium. Who's the volunteer assistant coach, first base coach. Um, and she was saying she'd never felt like that before because, you know, they've been to, she went to the World Series three times, I believe, uh, in her career here. She says there's just something, there was something different about doing it on the road, F- staring down that crowd and then doing that gator chomp to like 30 people instead of 2,000 people in the stadium. And it was a really satisfying, they didn't have to rush home and, and do laundry and pack and get ready on the, to, to get on the flag to Oklahoma City. They they went from there and they've been here since the, they've been here all week and prepared for uh, Thursday night's opening game against uh, an Oregon State team that is probably even more unlikely a team uh, having having been here. But it's funny Florida was the number fourteen seed in this tournament. Uh, the two, the three, the four are all gone.
1: So is the six.
0: So is the six. The four, Florida is the fourth is at fourteen is the fifth high seed in this in this uh, tournament. There were three unseated teams here, so I guess that's kind of like a sign that uh, uh, really there are no givens. Now, having said that, Oklahoma is a pretty big given. Excuse me. Last year they were fifty-six and four, I think fifty-seven and four. This year they're fifty-four and two. Mm. Um, but two of those losses came against Texas and against Oklahoma State, and both of those teams are here. So Sooners are the overwhelming favorite to win. They have they have three hitters that hit over four hundred. They have, I think, seven that hit over 340. Uh, of course, in, J- in Jocelyn Aloe, they have the number one home run hitter in NCAA history. I guess I wrote in my story they're kind of like Ivan Drago. You know? mm-hmm. You're gonna have to you're gonna have to bloody them to prove that uh, that they're that they're beatable. But having said that, uh, uh, Oklahoma State's done that just a couple weeks ago in the Big 12 tournament, eliminated them there, and Texas did it earlier in the season in a home in a home game. So, um, but the bottom line is uh florida's expectations every year would be in, in Oklahoma City um they were the fifth I think they finished fifth in the SEC this season and now they are the only team from the SEC at the College World Series so uh you know Tim Tim Walton and his coach staff got a lot of grief during the season on social media which is you know par for the course when you start considering social media and the reactionary uh, ways of fans sometimes but uh hopefully those fans uh will tune in uh, Thursday night for the first game of the college world series for the Gators.
1: Florida has the benefit of not being in the same bracket as Oklahoma, though they are on the same one as Oklahoma state. So if they were to win Oklahoma state wins, then you get again that matchup with Tim Walton and his former assistant coach, Kenny Gasky. not to mention Jen Rocha, Tim Walton's longtime former pitching coach is the pitching coach for Oklahoma. There's all kinds of storylines there. The longer Florida can hang around. So we will see just what they can do. Uh, On the baseball side, Scott, again, Chris just mentioned a moment ago uh, a lot of grief on social media. I mean, a month ago, there was possible Florida wasn't even going to make the NCAA tournament, and now they're a regional host. So, and and they're the 13th seed at that. Not even you know by they didn't even get in there by a nose. It seems like with the way they finished, they squarely put themselves in the committee's opinion in a you know a strong position. Uh, and now they've got momentum as they host a regional,
2: which seemed very unlikely not too long ago. Yeah, it's uh, caught a lot of people by surprise around the country. But, uh, you know, the Gators closed strong. They won 16 of their final 21. And that's including, you know, the wins in the uh, SEC tournament last week. And I, I think by going up there and making it to the championship game, that solidified their place as a, a regional host. But you got they got hired at the right time, Adam, and that's really something, you know, it's a trend that we've talked about with this team all year. Would they ever be able to get the consistency from the young pitching staff uh, that Kevin O'Sullivan knew? He really liked the talent, but he knew they needed innings and they needed experience uh, to figure some things out. And sure enough, they've hit the ball all year long, and now they've started to get some young pitching talent, uh, you know, going on the mound. And what you're seeing is guys like, Karsten Finvold, who uh, you know, he started the Tennessee game the other day. Actually, had a pretty good outing. Uh, lost it, but first time he's pitched since March 26. But really, the key is the first of all. Let's just start with the starting rotation. When after Hunter Barco went down, you know, you, you figure well that that might be it for Florida's postseason chances. I think a lot of people took that view. Uh, but that's they played their best ball since then. That's because Brandon Sproat, Brandon Nilly and Nick Pogue have solidified the start rotation. And then all those young pitchers I just mentioned, uh, you know, Finvold, Anthony City, Nick Ficarata, Uh, I'm sure I missed somebody, Philip Abner, some young arms. Uh, Jamison uh, starting to get some work and really coming through. You saw with the SEC tournament, you know, being just the nature of the event, how strung out it is. Two games in one day. I mean, Sully was basically throwing every – pitching combination he had out there and for the most part they answered the calls and uh, that's what it takes in these postseason tournaments but now they get to reboot and uh, like you guys were talking about with the softball I mean here we are got Oklahoma here in this regional so you're gonna have some Oklahoma Florida talk Oklahoma's coming in as I think the big uh, 12 champion playing well Liberty is back Uh, you remember Liberty opened the season in Gainesville and took two or three from the Gators. I mean, this is a very good baseball team and then central Michigan is uh, coming in and they, you look at their offensive stats. Uh, I mean, they're doing some amazing things offensively, uh, but I, you know, they probably haven't faced the same pitching as they have afforded. Uh, you know, it'll be interested to see if Jim McQueen, the central Michigan coach comes down to take in the baseball and return to return to the swamp area. I, I don't like the chances of seeing it, but you never know. So anyway, it's a it's an interesting little regional. Uh, I like the way the Gators are playing. I think Kevin O'Sullivan likes the way the Gators are playing, and he said as much. You know, in the SEC tournament, now you just see how it shakes out. I think they have every every reason to think they can get out of this regional, and then you just don't know what's happening. And you still in softball or softball. Bracket with all the upsets. I mean, you know, you would think, okay, this is definitely the Gators' last time hosting this season. They'll have to go on the road for Super Regional, but you just don't know. And that's why it makes the postseason fun. And it's what makes baseball, especially, a little different than other sports uh, because the season is so long. And uh, what a team looks like at the end of the season is often uh, much different than what it looked at look like at the first or mid season. And I think Florida fans who, uh, what's the word looking for, who tossed this team in the trash at mid season. I think maybe they're starting to pick them back out. (laughs) Uh, and again, you talk
1: about if the seeds hold, if they do, Florida would go to Virginia tech, just like softball did. And almost the same exact pairing 14, three compared to 13, four. So, uh, The NCAA committee is definitely, uh, I don't think they've intended to, but they've created some fun storylines around both baseball and softball uh, as we go deeper into these tournaments. Um, you know, last week we talked about tennis and, uh, as a team, the Gators obviously did not get where they wanted to in terms of a, a repeat campaign. However, they did repeat as the singles national champion, albeit a different Gator a year ago, Ben Shelton clinched the national title for the team this year. He wins the singles title, a very impressive accomplishment. Again, even when the team overall isn't making headlines, somebody from that squad is.
0: Yeah, just a sophomore, Ben Shelton. Obviously, the son of uh, head coach Brian Shelton. He didn't even qualify for the singles last year because he wasn't ranked high enough. He was wow. playing. He was playing, at, he was playing at the number five spot for the team last year when he did have that clinching championship point in the Baylor match. Um, he had a hell of a, a, a off season last year. Played in some tournaments and succeeded at some tournaments. Had a really good fall and ascended uh, up to past Sam. Riffus, who was the ncaa single champion last year and took over the number one spot for florida and played there basically the entire season and went into the postseason as the number two ranked singles player in the country and ultimately got uh paired up against august holmgren uh the number six ranked player i believe from the university of san diego holmgren won the first match in their championship uh round and uh uh, that, that that was basically it uh, uh brian shelton dominated uh the last two sets just an incredible he has an incredible serve uh he had a couple aces he had a, some i would say some luck went his way in the match the day before against i believe it was andy walton from tennessee he won that chance he won that uh advanced uh in that semifinal match on a on a let point and also had an incredible return from the back seat of his pants or shorts rather um it, at, at a really harrowing time of the match late and really had some incredible shots. And this guy is, is, is the real deal. Is left-handed about six, two and a half, uh, wildly athletic. Uh, I didn't know this. He was a football player when he was a kid, uh, hmm. but had gravitated more toward tennis. Obviously his father was obviously a great athlete, ACC tennis champion. And is also his club champion here at the country club in golf in Gainesville, by the way. Wow. Um, so it's a it's it's a it's an incredibly athletic family. He has obviously serious pedigree in tennis, and again, just a sophomore, but Florida now has four uh, all-time NCAA singles champions, and two different players won back-to-back championships for the same school. So congratulations to Ben Shelton and his father, who a year ago celebrated a uh, what at the time. was a historic uh, milestone to get Florida's first men's tennis championship. So fast forward a year later, and they're hugging after his son wins the NCAA 22 singles championship. Really, really cool story.
1: Moving on to another uh, developing story. Uh, You know, we talked last week about the cage match between Nick Saban and Jimbo Fisher in Destin. Uh, It turns out it did not happen. Unfortunately, I know Scott was really trying to do what he could to make sure that it did. But the coaches are there, the ads are there, and everybody's weighing in on the big topic, which we talked about last week: scheduling and the future of the SEC. Uh, Billy Napier spoke about this, and Scott Strickland did as well. What are we hearing from the the people that are most important when it comes to this topic?
2: Well, uh, the the big issues are obviously NIL and the scheduling, uh, and you know you've seen. I think they're just at a point of okay, we've had this around for a year. Uh, It's probably not going as the way many of us envision, and we we need to do something about it. And One thing I've seen this week that I like is that, you know, you've heard some conversations about maybe getting Congress involved and let them try to figure it out. Well, I think the leaders of college athletics, or at least in the SEC, are starting to say, you know what, we're probably better off trying to figure this out on our own. And uh, so, you know, we'll see what developments come from this. I mean, it's an ongoing story. Uh, obviously uh, the media showed up over in Destin this week, seeing what Nick Saban and Jimbo Fisher would have to say. Hey, you know, I think after uh, the the fireworks from earlier this month, both guys toned it down a little bit. I'm sure at the urging of uh, SEC commissioner, Greg Sankey. And now it's, you know, it, it's just going to be a, a story that continues. I mean, you know, everybody's talking about the matchup this year between those two certainly will be, I think the SEC's, um, probably most talked about game of the year when it happens if both teams are, are doing well. We'll see if they've really kissed and made up by the end or if, if there's still some uh, blood boiling. Uh, so that's a few months away. But from the Gators contingent over there, Adam, really, I mean, Billy Napier, one thing that I think is clear, he's 42 years old and he's got his first major gig and he, uh, he's been one of the coaches, if you've heard him talk consistently, who He's embraced the NIL, and he just, he looks at it more as an opportunity than maybe another hurdle to clear. So I think you're seeing the age of these coaches in college football now starting to separate. The older coaches, the more established coaches, you're there. You can sense some of their uh, disgruntled view of the NIL, and and you know how they wish maybe that wasn't. Involved in the sport and younger guys like Billy Napier and Eli Drinkwitz of Missouri and other guys. I mean, this these are the circumstances in which our career are going to exist. So, either we're going to stay in this and s- figure a way to operate within these guidelines and these uh, this era that we're in, or maybe go uh, sell cars or something. And it seems like Billy Napier is certainly one who wants to still coach, and I think that's why you're seeing him be one of the big proponents of the NIL and what it means. He said yesterday that he just looks at it as part of the game now. It's part of the competition. And so I I think that's the right attitude. And I think Florida fans probably should breathe a little sigh of relief that that is his attitude because I think the previous coach, I think, had some issues embracing that era and probably cost him at the end. So, uh, but, yeah, the the NIL, you know, it's kind of one of those topics. I'm already – tired of it in some way yet <laughs> it's just dominating everything and there's still no solutions or no uh system that is we're going to regulate this so uh sooner the better i think for everybody but are we any closer after the sec meetings this week i don't know i sure hope so but at least they were having some serious dialogue about it i want to turn our attention out to the pat
1: since the last time that we spoke i saw top gun maverick twice I saw it once in IMAX, and I saw it once in Dolby Cinema. Uh, pro tip, IMAX is better. If you have the ability to see it in IMAX, you absolutely should. And one of the reasons why it is so good is because it's an old-school action movie with real stunts. It's not all computer-generated stuff, and it feels like the stakes are real. And it, when I left there, I had this feeling of... They just don't make movies like this anymore. And it made me think of you guys because you're old school guys. And I wanted to talk about action movies specifically. Tell me your favorite action movies. uh, And maybe Top Gun's in there. I don't know. But go ahead. Give give it to me. What do you guys have for me?
0: I mean, mine's pretty easy because when it came out, nobody really knew anything about it. I'll be honest with you. It wasn't that hyped up because the star wasn't that big a star at the time. But the people making it at the time, because you had at the time, you had George Lucas, who just made Star Wars, teaming up with Steven Spielberg, who had made Jaws and he had made Close Encounters in the third Kind, And they rolled out this movie called Raiders of the Lost Ark. And and I'll defy anyone to say that's not the most action packed movie of all time. And at the time, I remember uh, it was Time Magazine or Newsweek had it on the cover before it came out and it's called a cliffhanger classic and it harkened back to the days and drew in a bunch of the old guard at the time, older movie fans that remembered the old serials from back in the day where you would go to a movie uh, back in the uh, 50s or what have you, and they would show you a a short. It would be a short and it would have a continuation. You go back to your next movie and you see the second part of that short. And that's what they said this movie made people think about because every scene kind of left you on the edge of your seat with something happening from the very beginning the first 15 minutes of the film as crazy as it was uh with the with him going into the cave and who's
1: the guy who plays
0: Oct- octave dr octavio or whatever in spider-man
1: uh alfred molina
0: yeah alfred molino is is the guy who's leading who's the guy who gets like jammed with that spiked fence in that it, at the beginning of that uh of the Raiders of the Lost Ark when they go in to to try to get that idol out of that cave. But to me, uh, uh, that movie kind of set the tone for the computer generated action genre. That wasn't, and it happened on, on dry land, not in outer space. Mm. Um, Yes. It had some uh, occult kind of things to it and whatever, but Raiders of the Lost Ark. And and I'm not crazy about what the brand became after that. Uh, I think there was only, Maybe the third one was okay. The one with Sean Connery was okay. I don't. I, I think they should have stopped. I don't think they're. I think they're making a fifth right now. In fact, I know they are.
1: I was just going to bring that up because for people who think that Tom Cruise is too old to still be making action movies at sixty, when the new, the Untitled Indiana Jones comes out on June thirtieth of twenty twenty three, Harrison Ford will be eighty years old, Correct. and he's still playing Correct. Indiana Jones.
0: Correct. And uh, there was a time where he was supposed to be giving off that mantra to...
1: It was supposed to be Shia LaBeouf. Sh- Shia LaBeouf,
0: Shia LaBeouf. Yeah. right. Yeah. So, so uh, yeah. Uh, and I guess uh, Shia went his way. <laughs> 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 kind of blew his shot at to yeah, be he the did. to be the indie, indie Junior or whatever. But uh, right as a lost arc, that's a pretty easy call for me. But again, I want to reiterate, I, 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 I did enjoy Top Gun Maverick.
1: Scott, you've been given a lot of time to consider this answer, so you better not mess it up. Well, you guys are both ahead of me having
2: already seen the new Top Gun movie. I do plan to see it. Uh, I was a big fan of the first one, really at the urging of my older cousin. That movie changed his life. He became a uh, military pilot Wow! In that movie. And of course, I still remember him. Getting some glasses like they wore in that movie and thinking he was very cool for a long time. Probably still has them. But, uh, you know, I I was looking at a list of the top action movies as you guys were talking. And I mean, there's a lot of action movies that I've enjoyed over the years. I can't, you know, like I remember one of the ones that was most hyped that I went to see and enjoyed was Terminator, you know, with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was one of my favorites. Point Break. Is another one that jumped out at me. I really enjoyed that movie uh for different reasons and a kind of a sci-fi, but I think just probably from just first time ever seeing an action movie and wanting to go back and see it again. I think I did two or three times. Do you guys consider alien an action movie?
1: I consider that a horror movie.
2: It's more sci-fi horror. Yeah. I just remember that was one of those movies that it, it, it intrigued me. I kept I went back to watch it. And I also, this is kind of cheesy now, but I like the Lethal Weapons franchise back in the day uh, with Danny Glover and uh, Mel Gibson. I remember, I think it was the second one, they filmed one of their uh, blow-up scenes in downtown Orlando. The Orlando was building a new courthouse at the time. This was in the late 80s. So they they blew up the old one and they used that footage in the movie. So I remember me and a couple of friends went down to see if we could check out what they were doing at the... uh, But I like that that franchise beyond that. That's just a memory. So you guys, again, I mean, you guys are the movie buffs, man. You guys are always going to get. I like more cerebral stuff, guys, (laughs) that that takes you on a journey through the human condition and uh, really leaves an imprint on your soul. And sometimes, (laughs) I'm sorry. Well, Scott, we need you to get to see Top Gun.
1: Um, but there are more important things you probably have to do at the moment, which is, of course, preparing for regionals in Gainesville. Chris is going to be in Oklahoma City throughout the run. As long as Gators softball is there, Chris will be as well posting content. So make sure to check those guys out. All their stuff will be up on FloridaGators.com, and you can find them on Twitter at GatorsScott and at GatorsChris. Gentlemen, thank you so much. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks, uh, Thanks, Adam. Following the retirement of Becky Burley last spring, few thought Florida would be in the market for another coach roughly a year later, but that's how the situation shook out. So when Scott Strickland went looking for a new leader, he set out to find a steady hand that could easily connect with the players, which led him to Samantha Bohan. After 15 years coaching Embry Riddle in Daytona Beach, Bohan had an incredible reputation in the state of Florida and a tremendous pedigree, which we learn more about in our recent chat.
3: I was born in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, lived there for about six years, and then we moved the family, I say, back to Daytona because both my um, mom and dad's parents were uh, in Daytona Beach. So my father's uh, fifth generation from Daytona, so it was just inevitable that we would head back there. So I grew up most of my life in Daytona Beach, which was wonderful, and had the opportunity to go play uh At Duke University, so I went there, worked in the athletic department for a year, did grad school at University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, did a year at the NCAA National Office as an intern, and then got back into coaching. So my coaching career kind of began after I finished the internship at the NCAA National Office.
1: I have lots of questions about some of the things you just mentioned, so I'll go through them. where did soccer first come into your life? What What do you remember about when you first got into it and, and and what sort of hooked you on it?
3: Yeah, I was the typical younger sibling. So my dad was the volunteer coach of my older brother. And I remember seeing them play. And so I was like, I want to do that too. But I played tennis actually pretty competitively. That was my my primary sport. And soccer, I played more recreationally. Um, when I was growing up until I was about maybe 12 years old, then I kind of flipped and played more competitively with soccer and then kind of pushed tennis to the side a bit.
1: What caused the flip? Was it like a, a Eureka moment of some kind?
3: <laughs> there was one moment. I do remember I had, I had achieved a earned a ranking in the state of Florida uh, for top 20. And with that came some opportunities to play in some specific tournaments and uh just that elevated the whole level a little bit and we went to one tournament with my parents down south and I played one of my friends and I just remember it being really hard to continue to keep playing your friends and I lost in that tournament earlier than I was supposed to and I remember the drive back just feeling like this wasn't really what I was excited about doing at the same time, I had an opportunity to potentially go live as a boarding student over at Nick Bolateri's tennis academy. And the two kind of combined simultaneously to help me understand that that wasn't really what I wanted to do. I think I realized I really enjoyed a team sport a little bit more. And just the professionalism of youth sports for me wasn't really appealing. Um, so I, I essentially just made the switch there. So I stayed playing tennis for probably the next year afterwards, but a little bit more casually. And then I just um, kind of let tennis go altogether after that.
1: I'm told you had a, a doubles partner that we might know. Who is your doubles partner?
3: <laughs> yeah. In training at the Balletary Academy that one summer, I got to play doubles a couple times with Jennifer Capriati. Now she was a far better player than I was. You know, I remember one tournament, where you had to be top 20 in the state to be in. And I was in the U12 division as an 11 year old and she was in the U18 division as an 11 year old. Wow! So um, she was definitely uh, a much better player than me but we really hit it off. I remember getting along with her very well and we, we had fun at that particular tournament. We were just kind of joking around little kids
1: was part of it that you saw what she was able to do and seeing the level that she was at and thinking, wait, maybe I'm, maybe I'm not there. Was I mean, was that part of it?
3: It's hard to think about that now to remember what I was actually thinking. I, I certainly think that now of, I do remember there being this real seriousness around her tennis that, you know, she went pro pretty, pretty soon after that. So I do remember there being this kind of pressure around her. I remember her dad in particular and just the expectation. I mean, she was, I think, 12 years old playing in this U18 international tournament. I remember there were players from all over in this, in this event. So I do remember her enjoying to kind of be a kid a little bit. Um, and I remember we stuck post-it notes around people's rooms, like the hotel rooms, just as being little kids. Mm -hmm. So, um, but I don't know if I was acutely aware of that then at that age, I was, I became, I think a little bit more aware of that after the fact. Hmm.
1: So you went on to play soccer at Duke, which you mentioned before. Um, what do you remember about your career as a player and and the memories you took from that and, and the experiences that obviously made you want to stay in the sport?
3: Those four years at Duke, wholeheartedly shaped my passion for coaching unequivocally I loved my experience there I mean it was not always easy by any means but I just really valued the personal growth that I had there the athletic growth I had um, spiritual growth that I had there and it's a big reason why I decided to get into coaching is because of what my college experience was and I wanted to try and offer that kind of a college experience to other people. So it, it was a really big, big uh, motivation for me getting into coaching. And I had a phenomenal coaches with Bill Hempen as the head coach and Carla Overbeck, um, the, the assistant coach. And she was you know in the national team and she still is. She's a friend of mine, good friend of mine. And she was a big reason why I stayed in coaching. And I think if you saw how she coaches and how I coach, I think there's a lot of similarities to that. So
1: um, it's been talked about a lot that uh, during your playing career you had this connection to uh, Danielle Fotopoulos, one of the one of the Gator <laughs> greats, and uh, that, that what was then I guess a, a rivalry of sorts has now turned into a lifelong friendship. So can you can you tell us a little bit about that story and, and where that comes from?
3: Sure. I think we started as friends. We were younger and she lived outside of Orlando and I lived in Daytona Beach. So we were pretty close to each other. And we we got to know each other through the Olympic Development Program, ODP. And then through that ODP, we ended up, I ended up actually guest playing with her team out of Orlando um, for my first two or three years in high school. So we played together through this kind of ODP group. Then we played together through club and we became really, really good friends. Our, our moms became very good friends. And so uh, we actually took a couple official recruiting trips together um, when we were looking at colleges. So we, we definitely had a really, really good friendship. And then when we played against each other, it still had that element, but we're both very competitive. So obviously we wanted to win. And then we, we trained together with the U.S. Women's National Team and then became friends again, but then we coached against each other. And then (laughs) we now coached against each other in the league that I was in um, prior to the Florida position. So we've, we've run its course with a lot of different roles, but at the, at the foundation of all of it's just this really good, authentic, wonderful friendship.
1: Hmm. Uh, So not only did you play at Duke, but then after that, you went on and got your master's at UNC. Now, I recognize maybe the richness of this as someone who is married to a Seminole, but that—that's not me, right? That, so I don't—I'm—I'm I'm not split in half. I've got the the other side of my relationship. You have this this dichotomy here of the Duke, the UNC within the same person. Uh, how how do you square that?
3: I jokingly say that my time at carolina was my community service project so I, i'm not i'm not sure that the tar heels appreciate that but yeah i mean two wonderful institutions two very different institutions honestly a private smaller private school and then a bigger state school really good areas you know eight miles away so i actually stayed living in in durham and i would get up in the morning i would drive my car and i would park my car at mia Hamm, cindy parlo siri mullenix's house hmm. and i would leave my I would get on my bike that I had left at their house and I would drive my bike, ride my bike into campus, train with a bunch of the the national team players, Mia and and Cindy and Carla Overbeck um, and some other players, and then go to my grad school classes, which there was only eight people in my grad program. So I was known as the Dookie. Um, (laughs) and, And then I'd finish my classes, bike back to Mia, Cindy and Siri's house Get in my car, drive back to Duke, go to Duke's practice, and uh, and then do my homework and and start all over again. So it was it was a really wonderful experience because I got to really see two really phenomenal college institutions. The academics, you know, are great both and and the athletic departments. I was involved in both of them um, as part of our graduate program. So it was it was one of my favorite years for sure.
1: So there wasn't really a split alliance. You were you were always a Dukey on Carolina's campus. You did not, you did not make a shift of any kind.
3: No chance.
1: No chance. Okay. (laughs) Good to know. Good to know. Um, (laughs) So, you know, you started out as an assistant. You talked about kind of getting into coaching that way. Uh, Then when you, when you got your chance to be a head coach at Emory Riddle, how did you establish a program? Like what did you identify from some of those influences that you knew was going to be important and was going to be sort of your, the, the building blocks that you established?
3: I remember watching a video of then AD, who was also at the time basketball coach at Ember riddle He's still our basketball coach at Ember riddle um, He's no longer the AD, but he did a video on the website and it talked about student person player approach. And, and he discussed about how we saw it as very important to invest and develop the student, the person and player. And this was, you know, 15 plus years ago when that was kind of an innovative concept. And also coming off of my experience, you know, in the power five division one, I felt like sometimes that person piece was lost a little bit. And so that really resonated with me. And I remember watching that video and deciding that I would follow up on the, the phone call that they had they had made to me about the position so that really was kind of the impetus for me having an interest and then it was it was very authentic I mean if you saw how we tried to build the program there we really followed that model um, and, and again Carla at Duke was a, was a perfect example of that like I always felt like I could go to her with anything whether it was soccer whether it was personal she just came alongside me and kind of walk through me in that stage of life. And that's, that's what I've tried to do um, in my coaching career.
1: What do you feel like you've learned since you started that's maybe changed the way that you do things? I mean, you obviously had an approach to, you know, at at the, at the get-go, but then what's evolved over 15 years that you've been able to refine?
3: Yeah, I think the, The allocation of my time and energy has probably changed. I think when I was a young coach, I spent a lot of time on the tactical side of things, the X's and O's, the different types of systems, the scouting reports. And part of that is I became a head coach. And part of it is just I think I've learned a little bit more that there's a really important dimension of coaching that's actually outside of the actual game, you know, and and it goes back to kind of investing in the people, investing in the culture, uh, investing in all the kind of surrounding things outside of the field. And so I think that's probably the biggest change for me is I've shifted a little bit more into those areas rather than just the X's and O's of the game.
1: When the call comes in from Scott Strickland uh, a couple weeks ago, what, what goes through your head? What was that? Was that, was that a call you were expecting? Was it out of the blue? Like what, what was going through your mind when that when that whole process started?
3: (laughs) I I think I probably laughed a little bit. Um, you know, when I first became aware of the position, I was sitting at lunch with the Ember Riddle team, which I, you know, I would do every day. And I I said, I I need to maybe have this conversation a little bit later in a different environment. (laughs) Uh, Um, part of me, if I'm being really honest, was a little bit sad because I really loved the Florida program before I became the head coach. And I just hated to see, going back to what I said about, you know, my Duke experience, I just hated to see student athletes not have a great experience themselves. So part of me was a little bit sad that it didn't work out, you know, the the first, with well, the first time and they were kind of having to start over a little bit. So, but I mean, I was very flattered and, and I think I've said before, and I'm not sure there was another school that would have really got my attention like Florida, because I had a really good situation at Embry-Riddle. I was living near my family. Uh, we had a top you know, 20 team that we had built from, from almost scratch. Um, and so I was in a really good situation. But like I said, in the press conference, you know, when Florida calls, you answer the phone and um, that definitely was the case.
1: When I know you also said that, you know, even a year ago, it wasn't the right time and it it had to be the right time, the right school. What were the factors that made this the right time that you were receptive to this when maybe in other times you weren't?
3: I think a lot of it actually more had to do with where things were for me in my personal life. My kids were a little bit young. My husband had a job that required a lot of traveling and it just didn't seem to to fit our family dynamic uh, very well last year. So it was more that side of, of things than the actual job itself.
1: You noted a second ago, you're coming into a, a situation where obviously it, it, you know, it wasn't in a great place, which is why the, there was a need for a new coach. When you come into a, a situation like that, how do you go about rebuilding culture or building culture if it's, if it's something new um, with the players that are currently there? I'm sure it's already started, but what is that process like?
3: Carefully, (laughs) you you don't try, you don't try to do too much too early. I think the first thing for me was just to try and allow the players to get to know me, who I am as a person, um, to, to, see what I value my whys, like why I do what I do. And just to kind of extend a little bit of an olive branch for them to see who I am. Um, and then to, to set a vision, which I think is really important, which we did on that first Zoom call, but to not try and do too much. I think just kind of establishing those core fundamental values and then just building on top of them as things get going a little bit. Hmm. So I think that, that that's the first step is, is letting them get to know me. And then they'll see I, I'm, I'm a very authentic person. I'll model a lot of the things that I'm asking of them. So I think that's really important um, is to make sure you live out your values and not just say these are your values and then just to be really genuinely interested in getting to know them who they are um and making them feel like you know a collective we're, we're part of a, a bigger team
1: yeah with soccer you always have a philosophy generally uh, some teams like to play possession some like to play more direct encounter um what would you say your style is what should fans expect to see the team look like as it takes shape
3: well in general i think I've had a a history of trying to recognize what would be best for this particular team. Every team changes from year to year. You bring in certain players, maybe you have injuries that you have to account for. So from a system standpoint, I'm pretty open-minded. I feel comfortable teaching a lot of different systems. So it's what's going to suit this particular team the best. And I think as far as style of play, I think it's a little bit of a happy medium. It's not, too much possession, but it's not too much of trying to play direct. I think there's, there's a time and a place for both. But I also think in general, what we will try to do is really teach the players how to problem solve and how to think for themselves on the field. I'm not a micromanaging coach. You know, won't hear me giving a lot of directives from the sideline. We really try to teach in between games so that then they're able to kind of make those decisions themselves and, and problem solve as a group.
1: Outside of your original influences, what coaches do you maybe take inspiration from today? I know so many coaches are always reading books; they're always, you know, going to to hear speeches by other coaches or leaders for how they can better themselves and what they're doing. Who are some voices that are that are prominent for you?
3: Well, I've already mentioned Carla Overbeck; she she was definitely a, a big uh, mentor for me. I was very fortunate to be around some pretty impressive coaches with Coach Kay, Pat Summit. Uh, I had a very profound kind of epiphany one day with with Pat Summit. I was playing golf with her and her longtime associate head coach, Mickey DeMoss, and uh, my head coach at the time, Ange Kelly. And we were playing golf and we'd just finished the 16th hole. We had a competition of head coaches versus assistant coaches. And at the end of the 16th hole, she put her club, her putter in her bag. And she said, all right, guys, I'm out of here. And we were like, wait, what's going on? What's what's happening? And she said, nope, I want to get home and I want to be there so that I can make dinner for her then husband, RB and her son, Tyler. And I just remember that really resonating with me because I'm a fierce competitor and I'm very driven in my career, but I also really value the role as a wife and a mom. And it was a very good example of somebody that had figured out how to be able to do both. And that was, that was pretty profound for me. And then I would also say coach uh, Steve Ritter uh, at Embry-Riddle. He's been at Embry-Riddle for 30 plus years. He was the one I mentioned that was the AD and, and the student person player motto really came from him, but I've just been able to live under his tutelage for the last 15 years. And I, I can't even, you know, list all of the things that he's taught me. But I think he's he's had a huge influence, uh, and myself as a coach, as a wife, as a mom, as a person. So I've been very very fortunate to be around some really impressive people.
1: Um, speaking of your family, I guess can you tell us a little bit about them and how does your family feel about this move? Tell us a little bit more about them.
3: <laughs> so my husband Matt, he uh, was my my younger brother's roommate in college. So that's wow. actually where we first met. He's a twin. <laughs> Yes. So they went to TCU and so he's a Texas guy. He was born and, and raised in Texas. And the first time he actually lived outside of Texas was when he moved to Florida uh, for us to then get engaged and, and married. Um, and he's just a he's a wonderful supporter. He he didn't know that much about soccer, but if you look at his, you know, social media profiles, he now has like a US women's national team. <laughs> low gore he's all in so he's he's really he's an incredible supporter of of me as a coach our teams um and even just the game in general and then we have three sons barris is our oldest he's 11 and he is all in he loves our players he's very close with players. He will be very vocal at games. He's, he's all win. Um, I just saw a sign that he made last week after the press conference, and it said Gators only. And if you don't like the Gators, get out. Um, so he, he's already, he's already fully on board.
1: That's a quick transition there. Yeah.
3: Yeah. That's just kind of who he is. He takes after his dad in, in that way for sure. Uh, our middle son Walker is nine and he he is very excited to just watch the soccer. So he is a soccer junkie himself. He loves watching it on TV. He just loves to play. He's probably maybe a little bit more after my heart, but he's um, he's very excited. He's a little bit quieter by nature, but he he's very excited. He wanted to see the field. He wanted to take a ball and go out on the field. So that was his thing. And then our youngest is Quarter. He just turned seven. And I think Alberta was his was his thing. So you know, <laughs> they each kind of gravitated to different different things. But at the end of the day, they they know how enriched their lives have been from me being a coach. And and there's certain compromises that they have to make with me being gone sometimes. And um, you know, maybe the highs and lows of of, of coaching. But they also get to really uh, enjoy some of the experiences about being around a team and things like that. So I think they're all really excited. They're sad to leave their friends. They're sad to leave their family, but the good thing is it's, it's close by. So we're trying to make plans so that they feel like they're not totally disconnecting.
1: Hmm. As a family, it sounds like there's a lot of soccer, which I think would be expected, but when it's not soccer, what are some things you and the family like to do together? What are some of your hobbies off the field?
3: We love camping. That was something that we tried to do in the off season a little bit before spring games would get going. So we would try to go just to a state park somewhere. We have a little camper trail that we pull behind my car. And that's something that's, that's fun that we really enjoy doing. We love fishing. So my parents live right on the uh, intercoastal so we could go to the dock or go out in one of the boats and, and, and fish. That's, that's something fun for us to do. Um and then we just love playing all sorts of sports. You know, the boys have done golf clinics and tennis clinics and, you know, flag football and basketball. So, we just like playing. It doesn't have to be soccer. In fact, it's probably not soccer. We probably play more sports um than we actually do with with soccer, but we just enjoy being active and being outside and and having fun.
1: Final question for you as we bring things back around to this uh this new challenge that you're inheriting um this is the gators right this is a huge brand this is a team it's won a national championship it's got a a brand new facility uh that you got introduced in just a a week ago that's incredible what is the what's the pitch as you go out pardon the pun as you go out on the road and you start trying to bring in more talent to the program and and build it back up what is it what what are you sharing with with prospective recruits with families about what the gators are going to be
3: well, I think it goes back to that student-person-player model. If you look at the student piece, it's a top five public school in the in the nation. That's That's incredible. So you know that you can rest assured that you're getting a really good education. The person piece, there are unlimited resources to help support the student-athletes. It's well documented that there's a lot of extra challenges that student-athletes are facing right now and the support structure that University of Florida has in place really is second to none. It's, it's, it's quite impressive and gives me peace of mind as a coach that I would be bringing student athletes into this environment that are going to be taken care of. And then the player piece, the, the SEC is a huge draw to play in a really competitive conference. And the potential that this program has, along with the tradition that it has, I, I just really think it's Really, the best of all worlds, and so I'm I'm very much looking forward to building this up in a, in a new way and and really trying to return it back to championship level.
1: Well, it's a great pitch. You don't want me to play for you because I'm very bad, but I'm sure, I know it's going to resonate all across the country as you as you start building this program back. So we wish you a lot of luck. Thank you so much for taking some time to talk to us. And uh, Gator Nation's excited to have you.
3: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to Gator Tales wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review to help us continue to grow. Be sure to keep track of all of the orange and blue action by visiting FloridaGators.com, then come back here every Thursday during the athletic season for an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick. Thank you so much for tuning in to Gator Tales.